For those of you who have been here for the last several weeks of this series, or those who have listened online or joined us online or even gone back and listened uh, through the church website, we have come to realize that through the first two chapters, this book has been full of questions. Questions that the Israelites have asked of God or vice versa. Some by God, but most by his people. Some of the questions, though, as we've looked at, have been more accusatory in nature rather than inquisitive. Rather than just wanting to know the answer, they've been accusatory towards God. In fact, questions here in this book are not the issue. It's the attitude behind the question. That was the issue of the Israelites. You know, in general, I have come to find in this life that when trust is high, questions tend to be few in those relationships. Would you guys agree with me on that? When, when you have a, a high trust of somebody, questions in that relationship tend to be very few. Would you guys agree with that? Well, what about on the other side of that? When trust is super low, everything gets questioned, right? Would you guys, would you guys agree with that statement? When trust is low, you know, these questions that we have seen here in Scripture, or we could say accusations, have taken aim at the goodness of God. Have you guys noticed that? They've taken aim at the goodness of God. Now, I want us to pick up at the end of chapter number 2, the very last verse of chapter number 2 is verse 17, and it says this, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? Again, another question. By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now look at chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And verse number four, then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the day of old and as in former years. Don't miss this part. These next two verses are crucial. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, meaning those who lie against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of, Israel, of Jacob, are not consumed. Let's stop there. And this is God's word for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come, we come to you and and Lord, we ask now as we have read these, these somewhat heavy verses here, Lord, that we would learn from them, that we would see moments in our lives where there have been error and we would turn from them. But Lord, if we have, have pursued you 
and our relationship with you is headed in a great direction, Lord, but you would continue to press and that we would continue to submit, that we would be a people uh, of truth and that we would learn uh, from your truth today, that we would not have hardened hearts, but we would have ears that would hear. And I ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name, amen, amen. You know, God's people here in the text were looking at their situations and their circumstances. They were questioning God's goodness and his provision. They were complaining that God would not or was not fair in their life. That God was the one to blame for all of the wrong that was taking place. They wanted to know why God had not passed judgment but on the other people not on themselves. Why were things the way that they are? The Israelites wanted answers. Now let me just, let me just fill us in on a, a little bit of truth here this morning. If you get nothing else from today, don't miss this one thing. God is not going to explain every single thing to us. If you get nothing else Walk away with that. God is not going to explain everything to us. There are going to be some things in this life that we will not get answers to. Not here. We may not even know until we are standing before him. But there are people in this world, there were people here in the Bible that were so self-righteous and proud that they believed God owed them an explanation. They believed that, that he should have explained it. Listen, let me ask you this question. Have you ever been in a situation where you had, you had your patience wear thin because of another person? I mean, everybody's hand, I would hope, would be raised. Like your, pace, your patience has been weared thin because of it. Like, like that person, listen, if it's your spouse, don't be elbowing them. Okay? No, no elbows. People online, we can't see you, but don't elbow your spouse on the couch. Like that person, whoever it is, like they stepped on your last nerve. Anybody? Like, have you ever been so weary and so worn out that you were just plain exhausted because of that person? Like, I'm just worn out having conversation with you. Like, I mean, you've come to the point where you're like, enough already! Anybody? Look back with me to verse number 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good, does that remind you of a time period? Maybe the time period that we're living in right now? Everyone who does evil is called good. And they say that it's good in the sight of the Lord and that he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Where have we seen that recently? Where is the God of justice here Listen, I, I couldn't help but read that one verse in this entirely small book here in the Old Testament and think that the inexhaustible God is wearied. The inexhaustible God is frustrated. This is what many would call a hyperbole in Scripture. 
a hyperbole. It's, it's a figure of speech that's used to help us understand the brevity of a situation. And this is it. The, the inexhaustible God is now wearied because of the people. The attitude and the actions of the people were causing God to be in this specific way, to respond in this specific way. But the issue was, was that it was the same thing over and over and over again. How about that? Your patience ever wear thin because it's the same nonsense over and over and over again. It was cyclical for the Israelites. The Israelites were disobedient. And because of that disobedience, they would make demands of God, which ultimately would lead to their repentance when God would not give in. And that repentance would lead to rejoicing. And then that rejoicing ended up turning into rebellion once again. And then guess what? Rebellion turned into rejection, which would turn into judgment. And then guess what? We see disobedience and demands, and repentance, and rejoicing, and then rejection, and rebellion, and the process just goes over and over. I mean, if you read, if you've studied at all in the Old Testament, that's the entire process that you see from the book of Exodus until we get here in Malachi, through the entire Old Testament. And so God sends prophet after prophet after prophet, and he does miracle after miracle after miracle. He provides again and again and again. And in the last book of the Old Testament, the last words for 400 years, God says, I'm wearied because of you. I'm wearied. I'm exhausted. For me, this was the tipping point of this book. The nation of Israel is now hitting God up with question after question, with statement after statement. And it's like, we don't trust you, God. You're not fair, God. You're not good, God. What are you talking about, God? Now, before I go any further than where we are at right now, I want for us to intently listen and, and to read this text, not religiously, but repentantly. But repentantly. Uh, I, I mean, look at your life. Look at your life and, and ask yourself the question that I did. The, the moment that I started writing this, I thought to myself, man, God, how much do I look like Israel at different times? How, how many times in my walk with you have I been just like this? How many times have I been disobedient? How many times have I rebelled? How many times did, did your judgment have to come upon me and it led me to repentance and rejoicing, but then the process started all over again in my life? Man, God has had to deal with my heart over and over again uh, on some of the same issues many times. What about you? What about you? I mean, people are still acting this way towards God, aren't they? 
We're seeing it everywhere. We are inundated with how people have thrown aside the truths of the Bible. I mean, who in here has never questioned God? I mean, maybe not out loud, but I believe we probably all have at some point or another in our hearts. Like, God, why did this happen? You ever said that one before? Like, why did, why did they have to die, Lord? Why are you not doing something about this situation, God? Why are they getting away with it? If you love me, why am I hurting? Why do I have to walk through this? Why, God? Why did I do everything that, that I, I know I'm supposed to do from Scripture, and yet it didn't work out right for me? Why didn't you protect me? Why, why me? Why not them? Why is this so hard? I've come to realize in my young 32 years uh, of life that we all have a tendency to lash out at God and question him. We have a tendency to accuse him. Welcome to Malachi. Welcome to the book of Malachi. But here's the thing. God knows each and every one of our hearts. God knows our minds. God knows our questions, and he, he knows our struggles and our hurts, and it's hard when we're suffering. It's hard when we're frustrated. It's hard. And when we have, we can have questions for God. I believe wholeheartedly God can handle our questions. I believe wholeheartedly God can handle our doubts. But there's a, there's a vastly different thing than asking questions to, to learn the answer and being accusatory towards him. There's a, there's a vast difference in asking God, please help me to understand this, and, and, and eviscerating God's character. Those are two different things, church. It's, it's, it's better for us to reach out to God for help we're reaching out with a repentant heart and remembering that God loves us and will one day reveal all things to us. One day, but not this day, but not this day. So the first thing I want us to see in Scripture is that sin contorts our view of God. Sin contorts our view of God. You know, when when the cry for justice and judgment came, the people were only seeing the other nation's sinfulness. You, 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 want, you want God to do something about their evil. You want God to judge them. I found... Um, there was, a, there was a time in, in our ministry in, uh, in Florida, and there was a, a lady that used to serve alongside of my wife and I, and, and there was a, a time where 
um, she was going through a lot, but it was unbeknownst to us. We had no idea that she was walking through the things that she was walking through. And I noticed a shift in this lady's attitude, and she, she used to be the check-in uh, welcome desk person for our children's ministry, and so she always had this like uh, very contagious smile, this laugh that, that could just light up a room. And I remember that she slowly began to fade away from that person, slowly began to fade away from being open and, and talking and praying with families. She became very closed off. And in that, that one moment of time, I remember that she began to, to snap at people at just the slightest of things. Hey, how come the pen's not sitting here? I need that. She would just lash out over a pen. But it really wasn't about the pen. Her heart was in shambles in her relationship with the Lord. And I remember this one time that I came in to the children's ministry wing in our church and I asked her a very simple question about a, a tag for a guest. A tag, that was it. Just a simple question. And I remember her screaming at me in my face and she walked away. And in that very moment of time, my flesh was like, God, make her drop dead. I'm just being honest with you. In my flesh, I was like, gone. I don't, don't even want her anymore. Don't want her around me. Don't, if this is how she's going to be, that's not the example that I want from my leaders. Especially, what if a kid was there? What if a parent was there? And immediately in my flesh, I wanted God to cast judgment upon her. I wanted her to strike her dead right there. Listen, you guys are all giving me crazy eyes like you ain't never had thoughts like that. And I'm like, God, I want you to do something about her evil. I want you to do something about her attitude. When the whole entire time, God was trying to teach me to become more patient. To become more grace-giving with people. And I'll just be 100% honest with you. Like, he's still working on me in that area. He is. God is still working on me at being more grace-giving because to be honest with you, if I had it in my flesh all the time, I'd just cut it all off all the time. Every time. I mean, just being honest with you. When we want God to judge someone else for their evil actions towards us, and you see, church, when we're hurting, when we're in pain, when we're emotional, we tend to only see things from our point of view. Would you agree with that, church? We tend to see things from our point of view, but I want you to, I want you to write something down. When we sin, we want God's grace, but when others sin, we want God's judgment. Here is what we don't want. We don't want God to exercise justice right now with every one of us. Why? Because we would all be in serious trouble. We would be in serious trouble. The reality here is only God is just. So that means only God can be fair. Only God can be fair. Sin contorts the fact that God is loving. 
that God is kind, that God is gentle, that he's graceful. And sin has infected everyone. And living in a sin-cursed world with sin-cursed people will right now result in a lot of complicated and confusing issues. And that's what we're seeing right now in our culture. And we often get stuck trying to sort out what we don't even understand. And, and someone once said this statement to me recently. They said, and I was, <laughs> I was talking with someone who's not a believer, and they asked me the question of why does God allow evil? If God is so good, why does he allow evil? And in the process of that conversation, because of course sinfulness, sinfulness gets brought up. And in the course of that conversation, he says to me, well, can't God just get rid of sin? Right? Valid question. Valid question. Can't God get rid of sin? And initially, I wanted to respond with a whole bunch of things. And I wanted to pull out my, my deep theological mind. And then I came to, to understand in that very moment of time that my, my theological argument is not going to win this person to Christ. But then I wanted to play devil's advocate for a minute, and I wanted to start asking questions. Wait, so if you get to ask questions, I get to as well. And so I made this statement, like, we need to be very careful. Well, why can't God just get rid of sin? And I, I'm like, well, because when we say or think things like that, we're clouded in our understanding. We're completely clouded. And I, I, I was like, okay, what can I do that will resonate with this person, that'll speak to something in their life that would help them? And so I was like, I got this. So I was like, brother, think about sin like cancer. He said, okay. I said, the only way to get rid of cancer is to get rid of people. And he just kind of sat back a little bit in his chair. And I said, cancer lives on and in people, and we don't want to get rid of people. And so it is with sin. God is the healer. God is the great physician. God sent his son to die on the cross, and that was the one way to get rid of sin for people. But not in the way that we would think. Not in the way that we would choose. Why? Because God is patient. Because God is about saving people and about separating sin from the sinner so that we can live in perfection in eternity with him to glorify him. So yes, sin contorts our view, but, and I'm talking a big but in scripture, talking huge, sin, sin contorts that. But God promised, he promised the cure for sin. He promised the cure for sin. And the only cure for sin is the Savior. And the Lord, as it says in our text, will come. And before he comes, a messenger will proceed him. One who speaks of him. 
One who says that God and his love and mercy will reach mankind and offer hope through eternal salvation. Do you know that the, the messenger came to say that God will forgive all sin for those who believe? That's what the messenger came to say. And church, aren't you glad that he is still in the midst of that process? Aren't you glad that he is he's being patient with the sinners? Amen, church? Now, I want to make a statement that um, is easy to say, hard to live out. God has an answer for every single one of our questions. And that answer is Jesus. God has one answer. One answer for every single question in your life. And it's Jesus. It's Jesus. You know, all of our questions about pain and suffering and the problems in this life will not be answered now. I love what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He said this, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know just as I am also known. Paul was saying that when we fully see Jesus in heaven, our need for answers will vanish. Our need for answers will vanish. And to be face to face with Jesus means that we will have unhindered and complete fellowship with him. Man, who is not excited about unhindered fellowship with Jesus? You know, 1 John chapter 3 tells us that when we get to heaven, we will see him as he is. Meaning that there will be no more barriers to, to us and him. Exodus 33 in the Old Testament said that the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. As a man speaks with his friend. Meaning open, free fellowship with Jesus Christ. Man. When we look into a mirror today, unless that mirror is dirty, when we look into a mirror today, the image is more often than not pretty clear. Would you guys agree with that? Do you know when, when he wrote that passage, when Paul wrote that, about looking into the mirror, the mirror in the ancient world was a polished piece of metal that always distorted the reflection. It always distorted. And it was a picture of how sinfulness in us distorts how we see life. And it causes us to ask questions. It causes us to demand answers of God. But I want to make a statement for each one of us this morning. This is for you, Balcony. This is for you here on the main level. This is for you who are watching and listening online. If we... If we knew more of our sinfulness, we would be driven to despair. If we knew more of God's glory, we would die in terror. If we had more of an understanding of God's word, we would be filled with conceit and tormented with ambition. 
And for that reason, heaven should be precious to us. For that very reason, church, we would not be able to handle greater knowledge on this side of eternity. You know, I think about heaven often, especially having gone through the Revelation Bible study with you guys. And I think about it often, one, because my soul longs to be in a place of no more torment. My soul longs to be in a place of no more sorrow, no more pain. My soul longs to be in a place where there is no more tears. My soul longs to be with loved ones who have passed on, whom we miss so dearly. The, the teacher and, and preacher inside of me longs to be with great men and women of God who have passed before me. I want to be able to walk on streets of gold. I want to be able to see the pearly gates. I want to see the angels around the throne of God worshiping day and night, singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But none of those things, none of those things are as precious and make heaven really heaven except for unhindered fellowship with God. And that's what my soul longs for the most, and that's what I want for you, is to long so much for heaven, not because of all the things that come with it, but because we get to be in the presence of our Creator. Because we get to see the nail-pierced hands of our Savior. So, the answer to our questions, the answer to our pain, the answer to our suffering, the answer to our conflict, is the presence of God in our lives. It's the presence of God in our lives. And I love what Paul told the church at Corinth when he said that the moment of salvation in one's life, we were given the gift of the Holy Spirit. He was given to us. And so spiritually speaking, as a, as a believer, we are now the dwelling place of God. We're his temple. The place where he dwells inside of us. And after salvation, he takes up residence with inside of us. The creator enters his creation. You know, Going back beyond Malachi in the Old Testament, or before Malachi in the Old Testament, that the purpose of the temple was where people met with God to repent. It was the place to sacrifice an animal for sin, but it was also the place to ready themselves for service. And most of the time when speaking of the temple, that last part is left out. To, to prepare the
the person for fellowship with God, meaning so that that person could seek his presence. They could seek his presence. You know, that's why in the Old Testament, over and over and over, you read about men and women building an altar to the Lord. And they named each altar in every place where they met with God as a way to ready themselves for seeking the Lord. Do you know that the first coming of Jesus was to establish the final payment for sin? God sent a messenger to prepare the people. His name was John the Baptist, and his message was repent and believe. Repent and believe. And now Jesus is here, but sadly, most of the people in Scripture rejected him. Man, if you study the Gospels, you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every single time Jesus was there, it says that there were multitudes of people that were following him. But do you guys remember what happened in Scripture? The moment he began to speak something hard, the people fell away. They fell away and fell away. All the way down to the fact that his own disciples walked away at the crucifixion. And so God extended grace all people he extended grace for us right now he extended grace for your neighbor who is a recovering addict and he extended grace to the atheist that you work with and he extended grace for the the one struggling with their gender or sexual identity And he extended grace to the alcoholic and the drug addict and the porn user and the adulterer. And he extended grace to the wayward child, to the abusive father or the abusive mother. He extended grace. I think oftentimes uh, the, the church falls in the category of Jonah. Or the Pharisees, we want all the grace for ourselves, but we don't want it for anybody else. But he extended grace, and until his son returns, that time period, that dispensation of grace is still active. Which means there's still time. There's still time for those people and the other people that I didn't mention. There's still time for them to experience that grace. There's still time for them to experience that hope. But right now, he's sending us out to be grace agents. He's sending us out, not just to be grace agents, but also to be truth tellers in that. But there will come a day, the Bible tells us that the second coming of Christ, he comes back as a judge and he brings wrath with him. And so there will be a day, there will be a day that is coming and happening alongside of the rapture of the church, everything will be made right. But I want want to tell you something, something I found to be true in scripture, that God always warns before he acts. There's always a warning. Do you guys remember back in our Genesis series that we kicked off at the very beginning of the year? I know that seems an eternity ago. 
there was something that I talked about, about God's warning signs in Scripture. And we looked at a specific one with Cain and Abel. God always warns before he acts. God always sent a prophet. God always sent a messenger. God always sends plenty of warnings. Look throughout the entire Old Testament, warning after warning after warning, and then boom, judgment. Do you know his next, his next warning will be audible? His next warning will occur when trumpet sounds. And there are warning signs right now all around us. But that sound is essential. That sound is essential. The sounds will be heard in the messages of the prophets. The sounds will be heard with those who proclaim God's word to a lost and dying world. Now, as, as I'm going to use this term, this term for each one of us, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are to be preachers of God's word. We are to be the ones that herald truth. And so as preachers of God's word, we all have the ministry of proclaiming the gospel. We are still to be warning people with truth. And what we say is not popular. What we say is not even pleasant. But God's purpose for these warnings are clear. They are sure. And he is coming. But what happens when he comes? Because we could sit all day long and preach that he is coming. We could sit all day long and talk uh, about what is going to happen in the end times. What's going to happen during the tribulation? Is the church going to be here or are they not going to be here? Are they going to be here for three and a half years? Are they going to be here for seven? Are they going to be here for none of it? And for those of you who went through the Revelation Bible study, I hope you have the answers to that. But there are some things that he specifically talked about here in the text. When he comes, the very first thing that he said that he will do is refine. He will be like a refiner of silver. He talked about the refiner's fire. He talked about the fuller's soap. And both of those things are cleansing agents. Did you guys catch that? Did you see it in scripture? And both use forms of heat. For those of you who do not know, fuller soap through friction cleanses whatever it touches. Fire through heat, through flame, cleans out the impurities. And so, when God comes, he's going to turn up the heat. And I don't mean physically like it's the dead of winter here in Michigan. And we're cold, and so we want the heat to warm. No, God is going to turn up the heat, and he will clean out those who are wicked and unrighteous. He removes the gross to gain a pure vessel. He cleanses the stain. And that cleaning and that refining is not only externally, but it's done internally, and it's thorough. Our application is quite simple. Jesus doesn't just forgive us, he cleanses us. He makes us pure. He gives us 
a clean garment. One that's recognizable as his. And he keeps us clean. You know, sometimes he will heat things up in our lives to reveal the things that don't look like him so that we can become more like him. He refines us. But he also revives us. He revives us. Do you remember your salvation story? Do you remember being dead in your trespasses? Do you remember being in a place where maybe you thought you had no hope And he plucked you right out of that dirty mess. Do you remember the joy in your life that came from salvation? Do you know the joy that comes from spending time in the presence of God balcony? Do you? Do you know the joy that comes from spending time with God? The joy that comes because of salvation? There's a reviving that occurs when Christ comes into one's life. Look with me at verses number 3 and 4 of chapter 3. He says, He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years what had been offered by the people was abominable. We read that in the last chapter. Their worship was wicked. It was wrong. And God was interested more in the worshiper than in the worship. He was interested in changing the follower to revive them and make things right through his relationship. Not religion. He wanted the the, the person Not the practice. So church, let me ask you a question as we begin to land the plane. Do you long to be revived? Do you long to be revived? Are you willing for God to refine you? To revive you? You know, in that process of sanctification, he might have to remove some things. He might have to remove, and it's painful. I bet I could, I could call upon somebody right now, and they could share with me a story. I'm not going to, so calm down. But I bet I could call upon somebody right now, and they could share with me a time where sanctification in their life was a painful process. When something had to be removed for the glory of God. So not only does he refine us and revive us, but he will will remove. Look with me at verse number 5. It says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. God is coming to say, I'm cleaning house. I'm coming to take care of it. I'm going to pass judgment on those who reject me. Some things in your life need to go, and I'm going to get rid of them. Let me ask you a question. 
Is there one of the sins listed right there that you could find in yourself? Please don't answer out loud. Please do not incriminate yourself. But I believe that we could all find a sin of ourselves somewhere in verse number 5. And here's the thing, it's better for us right now to experience the temporary fires of sanctification than it will be the eternal fire of judgment. We will all sit over a flame and it's better to do it now in God's love and grace and mercy than for eternity with his wrath. Jesus came as the Savior the first time he comes as the judge the second. And so church, I want you to make one last note of something this morning. Please do not mistake God's patience as permission for you to keep sinning. Amen, church? Don't mistake God's patience as permission to keep on sinning. God's justice will always be found in one of two places. It will either be the cross of Christ or the throne of Christ. And I hope and pray that we want the cross and not the throne. That we want the cross because on the cross, God's love and mercy met God's justice. And on the cross, God forgave and justified us. Listen, if God only forgave, we would not get to heaven. If that's all he did was forgive, we would not get to heaven. Why? Because we must be justified. We must be declared as righteous. And if we bypass the cross, if we only look to the throne, then God could say, I have forgiven you, but you rejected my grace. And so my judgment is what you want. And if that's the case, we will stand before him and he will pronounce us guilty. He will pronounce us unjustified. And so church, balcony, online, sentence is coming, but right now we have a gracious Savior. Sentence is coming. Do you know God wants people to be revived? And that means that he's going to refine us. And sometimes that happens through pain and suffering that he removes things from our lives. But church, never, ever, 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 ever forget that it is all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now, Lord, and we thank you. We thank you for passages of scripture that show us the very nature of, of your love and grace and mercy alongside of your justice, Lord, and that you are long-suffering with us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would heed the words of your scripture today, that if there are things in our lives, Lord, that you would make us so uncomfortable in our sinfulness that we could not stay where we are, that you would refine us, that you would revive us, us, that you would give us guidance and direction and how to handle these, these tough situations that are going on in our culture. Teach us, Lord, how to be grace-filled with people who sin differently than we do. Show us through your word, Lord, how we can lovingly speak truth. God, I'm asking 
of you to give us a bold witness that we would unashamedly carry the gospel on our lips. That we would see that we would see men and women and teenagers and children and we would not we would not be able to walk away from them because we have been so compelled to share hope. Lord, I, I pray that we we would not become hard-hearted in our response to you. Holy Spirit, work, work in our families, work in our marriages, work in our children and our teenagers. God, we're, we're praying for families to come to know you. We're praying for moms and dads to be impacted with the gospel. We're praying for marriages to be restored because of the gospel. We're praying for addicts to become clean and renewed because of the gospel. Holy Spirit, you, you can move. You don't need our permission. God, move in the, in the lives uh, of people so they can be revived, refined, and then repurposed to share your glory. I ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen, amen, and amen. Thank you, church, for being here with us on this wonderful Sunday. Uh, we love you. We hope to see you this Wednesday night at 6.30 for Bible study. Uh, remember, there is no youth group this evening, and we will see you at some point this week. Love you, and you are sent.